Welcome to an exceptionally fun edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Al Franken, Counterspin, Le Show, Rachel Maddow, Radio Nation, and finally a very special clip brought to you only by special permission from the very highest source. to critics who believe that you're ignoring the advice of retired generals, military commanders, who say that there needs to be a change. I say I listen to all voices, but mine's the final decision, and Don Rumsfeld is doing a fine job. He's not only transforming the military, he's fighting a, a, a war on terror. He's helping us fight a war on terror. I have strong confidence in Don Rumsfeld. I hear the voices, and I read the front page, and I know the speculation. But I'm the decider, and I decide what is best, and what's best is for Don Rumsfeld to remain as the Secretary of Defense. Ben, hit him with the lie. I'm the decider. And I decide what's best. He had a little temper tantrum today, didn't he? I'm the decider. The decider. <laughs> it's like, I mean, he, you know, it's like when a band comes out with their greatest hits album, and it's awesome. You know, it's like got their greatest hits. It's like 12 tracks. And then they think, we can top that. He makes we th- can make a greater hits album. Because I don't know that he's had a quote dumber than this. <laughs> it's it's you know it it should really go to eleven eleven. <laughs> I'm the decider. He makes decidings. Yeah, <laughs> lots of big ones. Uh, he has wow. made a lot of interesting and curious decidings. He really has. I am the decider. I decide what's best. That's what President Bush said today. Um, it's you know what he reminds me of. He reminds me of like um, kind of a clown wrestler, like Iron Mike Sharp or or. You know, no, I won't give him the title of SD Special Delivery Jones because that guy was really cool. No, he's like the clown guy, maybe the Outback guys, if you remember those guys from way back in the day. That, like, they're the guys that, that are kind of on a level where they can beat somebody once every six months or so, but they're the chump that you throw out there for the, the really good wrestlers to beat up on. And he doesn't have the – because in wrestling, it's not about how big you are. It's not about anything. It's about your lines. When you come out and The Rock comes out and says, you know, I got a tall glass of shut up juice for you. Know your role. Right? And everyone's like, yeah. And then Georgie comes out. Georgie in his tight pants comes out and says, I'm the decider. I got to decide what to, what to do. And they're like, okay, you throw him to the lines. I'm the I'm the decider. It's like a, but in this, you know, I usually call him a, a, a you know, a, a sixth or seventh grader, a middle schooler, a uh-huh. young middle schooler. Um, this is like a three year old. I'm no, telling you, I've is... stuck with third grader all along, and I'm going to be proven right. <laughs> this guy's a third grader. Yeah, but I'm the decider. It's not even third grader. It's a three year old. It's like it's like you know, mom and dad disagree, and he's like, I the decider. It's not you a know, third grader. It's not a word. A third grader doesn't use the word decider. It's a short bus rider. That's what it is. <laughs> short bus rider. Don't get us in trouble, Jilly. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But We're you not know making what? fun of people with uh, mental handicaps. We're making fun of Filipinos. <laughs> <laughs> We're making fun of uh, presidents with mental handicaps. Um, and, all right. then, and then by then the same uh, was he was introducing jo- uh, Josh Bolton's replacement to, uh, as, because Bolton is now the chief of staff and they need somebody uh, to become the new budget director. He nominated a trade representative, uh, Bob, uh, excuse me, Rob Portman, 
uh, for the job. And I heard some of that press conference, and, and it was like, I didn't really hear it. I, well, I did hear it. I'm sorry. I didn't. I heard it late. I didn't see it live. Sorry. And uh, and he was like talking about this guy like like you would introduce a book report. You know. Oh, again. And no, because it's like and the uh, because the budget director is very important because he's in charge of the budget, and he has a lot of people who work for him, and he's their boss. You know, I mean, it's it's yeah, it, embarrassing. I'd like it's embarrassing. to in- introduce Josh Bolton. He is 54 years old. Right. Yeah. He is tall and has brown hair. I just appointed him to. What did I appoint him to? <laughs> to be my budget man. Budget man. <laughs> the uh, you know uh, um, uh, the uh, uh, I when I was in uh, college at Tufts University, uh, go Jumbos. In my freshman year, I took oh. I took Spanish, whatever, three or four or something, and. We had to do a report on anything we wanted, but it, we had to do the report like for ten minutes in Spanish. Oh! And I, of course, forgot. Right? Mm-hmm. I remember the night before, and I was like, "Ah!" Oh. So I literally went to the encyclopedia and I did a report on Venezuela. But <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm in college. This is the kind of thing you do in third grade. Mm-hmm. Right, a report on Venezuela, and I just like I literally translated the things I know. You know, the topography in Venezuela is very hilly. You know, I mean, it was ridiculous. And I, and then and the last thing was, you know, and the primary source of food for them in Venezuela are, are beans and rice. That's how I ended the report. It was I've been lamer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I end with, you know, I can't even remember frijoles. I think are beans. Is that right, Dave? Frijoles or beans? Uh, frijoles y arroz. Right, mm-hmm. arroz is right, and then the, wo- the woman speaks up, and she'd done her report on SIDA, which is AIDS, and the rampant spread. The, the the you know people starting to recognize the crisis of AIDS in Latin America, right? Which was, of course, far more research and far more appropriate for people in college than doing a report on Venezuela, right? Mm-hmm. And so she asked me in Spanish. She talks so fast I can barely understand. I don't know what she was. She should have been Spanish forty, not Spanish four. She's like, and I can't even do it in Spanish. She's like. What percent? She said, "Do the people, um, uh, the uh, when the people eat rice, is it is it divided by class? Do people with more money are they able to eat things other than just the rice and beans, right?" And I was like, "This is not from the teacher. It's from another student, uh-huh. right?" And so I just said back in Spanish, "They eat frijoles y arroz." <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you something? People like that who yeah. ask me questions like that, especially in high school when I was more of a fighter, they got their ass kicked after school. I'm not playing. Like I'm like, oh, you hey, go ahead, ask me another wise ass question in Spanish. Go ahead, yeah. I dare Did you. She had the nerve to ask you in Spanish. Oh, of course, she asked me in Spanish. You understood had, it? Yeah, I got the input because I understood rico y poor, and I was like, oh, this is a question, and I I just couldn't. I dumbfounded me that she was actually asking a question because everybody else was doing their duty and sitting on their hands the way what you're supposed to do when you realize that an idiot is getting up there and telling you about the topography of Venezuela. And that's I think what's happening with the press corps. They're like, oh, leave the poor kid alone. Right. Yeah. He's the decider. Interesting hate mail today. Uh, this is from Farley L. Hatcher, and uh, it's hate mail from the left. Ooh, really? Mm-hmm. My learned friend Al, why don't you ever read hate mail from the left? I'm sick of you, Patsy faced. I think Pacey. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. 
I'm sick of you pasty-faced white peace creeps on Air America pretending to be liberal or progressive. You have all sat back and allowed the Hannity's and Limbaugh's to define liberal and to create straw men that they can burn every day. You phonies posing as progressives are just like dogs barking at everything, but then are lower than dogs because you don't want to fight. But think that there is some common ground to be reached. Screw that. There is no common ground. And this is why people are losing respect for the minority party. They stand for nil. Kindest regards, Farley. Farley, you got a good point. Sometimes we liberals can be too wishy-washy, and uh, on the other hand, we do, we do have to appeal to people in the middle, the independents who determine who wins elections. If you don't win, you can't affect the kind of change that I know that uh, you, Farley, uh, and we believe in. On the other hand, you do make a good point that by trying to find common ground, we may seem like we stand for nothing. So, Farley, thanks for your critique. I've assigned a committee to reread it and uh, make some recommendations. We should have uh, those recommendations uh, by sometime after the election. Is it going to be a blue ribbon committee? I've appointed some pretty impressive people, including um, Eric. Eric Hanoki. It's a good letter. I, I think it's a little strong, though. A little too strong for my case. issue of American Prospect magazine, Robert Dreyfus writes that despite all that's been written about Dick Cheney's role in the Bush administration, quote, most of what's written fails to explain how the vice president wields his extraordinary authority, close quote. Part of the reason for this, as Dreyfus explains, is the bizarre press policy that governs Cheney's office and staff. Robert Dreyfus's article, Vice Squad, appears in the new issue of American Prospect. He joins us now by telephone. Robert Dreyfus, welcome back to Counterspin. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, first things first, your article is an in-depth look at how Dick Cheney's power is exercised within the Bush administration. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think most people assume that his power is primarily through the president. That is, that he has the president's ear and confidence and meets with him so frequently that he can influence the president's decisions. But what I looked into is the role of his staff, because I believe, and I think I showed that in the article, that uh, since 2001, he's assembled a parallel National Security Council, a very large staff involving dozens of people who work on his behalf in all of the policy committees and decision-making processes at lower levels in the government and who really throw their weight around, who say, I'm here from the vice president's office, and we don't like this, and so the meeting's over if, if it looks like it's going to run contrary to what Cheney wants. I think before the bungled war in Iraq, I think the Cheney's office was the, the nerve center for a bunch of people throughout the administration who were co-thinkers. I think now it's kind of a bunker. In other words, a lot of the, the neoconservatives and hardliners have left other parts of the government, and they're now concentrated, what's left of them, in Cheney's office, still, I think, quite powerful and still quite able to effectively represent the vice president's hardline, even militant views on, on most issues. 
So at least early on, there may be some truth to the notion that Cheney is in, at least in some ways, in charge. I think there's no doubt that in this administration, Cheney is the decider, as Bush says the other, said the other day, that he's the decider. We have a president with very, very little, virtually no experience in foreign policy, somebody who relies almost entirely on his advisors, and his advisor-in-chief is Cheney, so that the decisions that the president makes are spoon-fed to him from below by staff workers who put together option papers and recommend options, and then Cheney's sitting there at the president's elbow to say, uh, you know, you should decide this or you should decide that. So I think the acting president is Dick Cheney, and then the elected president is kind of along for the ride. Why have most reporters failed to write about how Cheney's office exerts itself? What are some of those reasons? Well, what, what I was struck by is there's been almost like a, a code word uh, over the last four or five years. You always see people referring to civilians at the Pentagon coupled with staffers in the office of the vice president. But they're almost never named. Um, it wasn't really until the indictment of Louis Libby and then his resignation late last year that people even heard of, of Libby's name. And I would say that not one in a hundred Americans could name anybody who's even on the vice president's staff today. Yet, as I've shown in my article, they exercise an enormous amount of power. Um, I, I found it difficult to explain why the media hasn't had the kind of aggressive reporting record on dealing with this. Part of the reason certainly is that this is a very closed shop. When I called the vice president's office and asked to speak to some people on the staff, they seemed shocked that I would even ask, and they told me point blank that nobody on the staff gives interviews. Then when I asked if they could give me a list of the people who work for Cheney, they said, we don't release that. They don't even release the names or the titles to the public or to the media. And this is a, a pattern that I know goes back several years. Part of the reason is just because it's so hard to penetrate, people don't seem to want to bother. Then second, for the inside type reporters, the staff generally acts as a background briefing source. That's true for almost every staff, whether it's on Capitol Hill or in the executive branch. So reporters don't want very often to investigate the staff because they're the ones that they rely on for little tete-a-tetes to get, you know, inside nuggets and, and so forth. So just as we see now that Louis Libby was often meeting for lunch with Judy Miller from the New York Times, you wouldn't expect her to want to investigate who's working for Cheney simply because they're the people who are designated from time to time to go out and talk to reporters and schmooze them and butter them up and give them little bits of information. So I think for those two reasons, first, um, simple you know, lack of doggedness, and then second, uh, an unwillingness to burn bridges with people who might uh, help them with access now and then, reporters have generally sh shied away from reporting on what I think is a, a crucial story about how the Bush administration operates internally. Well, as you point out in your article, Cheney has gone through seven press secretaries whose job is saying nothing and saying it often, as you put it. 
and his office refuses to even disclose who works there, as you just pointed out. Considering the Howard Hughes level of eccentricity here, particularly considering Cheney is a public servant who is supposed to operate in the open, Robert Dreyfus, were you able to find any other reporters that have looked at the way the vice president's office operates? Um, very little. Early on in the administration, when Cheney first uh, took office, there were a couple of reports here and there um, that talked about the mini National Security Council that he was putting together. Um, and then that kind of disappeared as a, a theme in reporting. And I know because I read, I think, probably everything that was written about Cheney by uh, any of the major dailies or news weeklies. Um, now, of course, there have been many stories about Cheney as a power center in the administration. Mm-hmm. But again, almost none of them looked significantly at the staff itself. Uh, after the Libby indictment last fall, uh, there was a, a flurry, of course, of uh, reports and uh, investigative stories about Libby and his background and what Scooter did and where he came from and so forth, um, as well as kind of a, a parallel set of stories about uh, his replacement, uh, David Addington, uh, a lawyer who uh, was involved in virtually all of the key national security law decisions over the past five years. Um, again, that kind of faded away after that flurry, and I, I think it's safe to say you don't find anything now about uh, either one of those things in the, in the press. So uh, really, no, there's been no serious investigation of uh, the the Cheney staff since uh, the very, very earliest days of the administration. And of course, there's been almost a wholesale uh, turnover of people since then. We've been speaking with freelance writer Robert Dreyfus. He's the author of the recently published book, Devil's Game, How the United States Helped Unleash Fundamentalist Islam. You can read his American Prospect article on Dick Cheney's staff, Vice Squad, online at www.prospect.org. Robert Dreyfus, thanks again for joining us today on Counterspin. Thanks a lot. It's been my pleasure. Yes, there's good news. Of course there's good news. There's always good news. The Pentagon is toughening up its policy of awarding bonuses to defense contractors. From now on, they will have to do at least a satisfactory job to qualify for extra money. Can we all just get that deal, please, now? The new policy debuted in two notices in the Federal Register at the end of last month and in a memo from the Pentagon's number two procurement official. This is in response to a GAO study, that's our Congress's accounting arm, that found that some payments to defense contractors were less than defensible. In a study of 93 contracts, the GAO found that the Defense Department paid out $8 billion in special award and incentive fees, most often without regard to performance. In many cases, the projects were behind schedule, over budget, and experiencing significant technical problems. That deserves a, If that doesn't deserve a bonus, what does? The report said, Those practices dilute the power of monetary incentives to spur better, faster, and more efficient work by contractors. If that's what you wanted, I don't... 
The Pentagon promises to link awards to specific milestones, do a better job of monitoring contractor performance. Now, they promise that. Quote, clearly satisfactory performance should earn considerably less than excellent performance. Otherwise, the motivation to achieve excellence is negated, says James Finley, the Pentagon's number two procurement official. Performance that is less than satisfactory is not entitled to any award fee. So you get an award for satisfactory performance, ladies and gentlemen. That is so good. Satisfactory. The Oscar for satisfactory achievement in motion pictures goes to everybody. Well, almost. Almost. More news of about Iraq. American contractors swindled hundreds, swindled, it's a very strong word, isn't it, Washington Post? Yes. Oh, sorry, it's Boston Globe. Yes, it is. American contractors swindled hundreds of millions of dollars in Iraqi funds. So far, there's no way for Iraq's government to recoup the money. Sounds like the perfect crime. What's the problem? We're out of there. Come chase us. Come invade us for the money. Courts in the United States are beginning to force contractors to repay reconstruction funds stolen from the American government, but legal roadblocks have prevented Iraq from recovering funds that were seized from the Iraqi government by the U.S.-led coalition and then paid to, co- to contractors who failed to do the work. Now, does that, that's not satisfactory then? That doesn't meet the level of satisfactory? An Iraqi law created by the coalition provisional authority days before it went out of business gives American contractors immunity from prosecution in Iraq. Thank you, Paul Bremer. Thinking all the time. The noggin. In effect, it makes Iraq into a free fraud zone, says an attorney who is suing the private security firm Custer Battles in a suit filed by former employees. Says Patrick Byrne, spokesman for Taxpayers Against Fraud, a watchdog group, quote, the Iraqi people are out of luck the way it stands right now. Well, they don't have a government anyway. What is it, four months now since the election? That was such a cool election. Too bad it didn't lead to a government. Aren't they supposed to do that? Wasn't that the idea of the election? I know we were celebrating it way back when. Was the idea just to get purple ink on your fingers? Apparently so. Iraqi leaders, paralyzed by that political deadlock, have so far made no formal complaint about the funds that were paid out to dishonest contractors. But U.S. officials say the need for Iraq to recoup the stolen money has become more urgent as it faces a budget shortfall of billions of dollars. An interagency working group, officials from the State Department and the Department of Justice, has been set up to try to come up with a mechanism to return the funds. The coalition controlled more than $20 billion in Iraqi funds. The money was deposited into an account called the Development Fund for Iraq, which was set up in the words of L. Paul Bremer, guy who ran the place, quote, for the benefit of the Iraqi people. The coalition provisional authority lacked basic controls and accounting procedures to keep track of the billions in Iraqi money it was doling out to contractors, according to audits at the time. Uh, no, audits later. In some co- cases, contractors were paid twice for the same job. In other cases, they were paid for work that was never done. At least they didn't screw it up. That's satisfactory. If it, Do you see a pattern here? Coalition had spent or dispersed about $14 billion of the Iraqi fund by the time it went out of business. 
Among the contracts paid for out of that fund was Halliburton's controversial no-bid contract to restore Iraq's oil infrastructure. That was worth $2.5 billion. Pentagon's auditors later found $263 million in excessive or unsubstantiated costs. But the Pentagon said in February it agreed to pay Halliburton all but $10 million of the contested charges. The federal... It must make them very, very happy that we, we did that for them. We lead with breaking news. Turns out the president's an idiot. I, I know. I know it comes as a shock to everybody. But buckle up, we got another clip for you. Oh, it's a dandy. If you're on the youngturks.com, you're gonna be able to see it. Please, I, uh, Simpleton. <laughs> you, you, you prefer Simpleton. I'm gonna let the people watch and, and listen, and let them make up their own mind as to what they think it is. Uh, and if you're on the radio, it's okay. You'll be able to hear it. He's uh, <laughs> answering questions from the audience. He's got to stop doing this. It's getting embarrassing. Yeah. A young girl, still in school, maybe a freshman, I'm not sure, uh, asked him a question about uh, laws that apply in Iraq to the military contractors there. Not, not to the, our U.S. military, but to the private contractors that serve as security or whatever else jobs that they do in Iraq. Seems to be a simple question, uh, something I would imagine the president would know. Let's find out if he does. Here is your embarrassing president. Uh, yeah. Please. Um, thank you, Mr. President. It's an honor to have you here. Thanks. I'm a first-year student in South Asia Studies. Uh, my question is, is in regards to private military contractors. The Uniform Code of Military Justice does not apply to these contractors in Iraq. I asked your Secretary of Defense a couple months ago what law governs their actions. Uh, Mr. I was going to ask him. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Help. Well, I was there it is. In a I was hoping your answer might be a little more specific. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Rumsfeld answered that Iraq has its own domestic laws, which he assumed apply to those private military contractors. However, um, Iraq is clearly not currently capable of enforcing its laws, much less against, you know, over our American military contractors. Um, I would submit to you that in this case, uh, this is one case that privatization is not a solution. Mm. And Mr. President, how do you propose to bring private military contractors under a system of law? Yeah, I appreciate that very much. I wasn't kidding. <laughs> I, I was going to pick up the phone and say, Mr. Secretary, I got an interesting question. This is what delegation... I don't mean to be dodging the question, although it's kind of convenient in this case, but never... <laughs> I really will. I'm going to call the secretary and say, you brought up a very valid question, and what are we doing about it? Because that's how I work. I'm, uh, um, <laughs> Alex, I, I use the phone. That's how I work. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I, I know we're six years into it. And I know it shouldn't get to the point where we're surprised by any of this, right? 
But the guy, the man's an absolute embarrassment. You know, the, his line is funny. I call the Secretary of Defense, ask him. That's funny. Mm-hmm. But then you have to answer the question. It's only funny if you then answer it. If you don't answer it, then it's like, oh, you really have no idea. And it's not like it's a question that's never come up before. In fact, it was a big issue two years ago. She, wait, 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 wait. First of all, this is the most connected freshman in America. Huh. She's already asked the Secretary of Defense. Know, <laughs> she said in the earlier question. I don't know. I mean, maybe she's Condoleezza uh, Rice's daughter or something. Where, where was he speaking? Do we, do we know? We she's have not that? married, by the way. Uh, JR, tell us where he was uh, speaking there. She was at Johns Hopkins University. So Johns uh, Hopkins. All right, right. So she, uh, in Washington, the Washington campus. So it, she might have been a grad student because that's where uh, I know at least their School of Advanced International Studies is in Washington. Hopkins itself is in Baltimore. But so if you – like and she's studying. She's in South Southeast Asian studies. South Asian studies. South Asian studies. So she's already infinitely smarter than he is. I mean, seriously, she's just a more you know. And just the manner in which she asked the question, she laughed at the joke. She wasn't uh, rigid or uh, she wasn't an ideologue. She, she said, like, "It's an honor to have you." Honor to have you. Ha 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 ha. Funny. That's a good one. That's a good one. But seriously, what do you think? <laughs> you know. All right. Well, look. I have seventeen things to say about that clip. Number one, she says I'm studying South Asian studies. And immediately, if you see it, you know, we showed it on the Young Turks. You could see it later, too. Um, you, you see his reaction like, uh-oh. Like, right. you know, uh-oh, here comes a tough one. This chick's smart. She's right. studying South Asian studies. I don't even know what South Asia is, right? And then then he gets into the question and, and the answer. <laughs> okay, look, enough with the nervous laughter and the cackle and the Jesus. And then let's get to the heart of this thing. He has no idea. No. And he thinks it's okay that he has no idea. And he thinks, hey, listen, I'll ask the Secretary of Defense. First of all, she already told you the Secretary of Defense has no idea either. So, so that's not acceptable. Second of all, her question is not a minute question. It's not some sort of like, hey, what kind of civil law applies to... You know, uh, this in Najaf, or, you know, it's not some minutia thing. It's all of these civilian U.S. contractors in Iraq, what law applies to them? That is a major, major question because sometimes they shoot at, oftentimes they shoot at people. What if they hit somebody? What if they kill somebody? What if they hurt somebody? What if there's a dispute? What law applies? And the president has. No idea. You know, even if he gives an answer that suggests it's a developing area of law, he goes, "Well, this is one of the things we've, we're running into in Iraq is that these guys they're they're private, they're not subject to military law, but obviously Iraq is not in position to enforce them there. But we have a sovereignty issue with sovereignty. Like he'd bring that up on his own. We have a sovereignty. It's not like we can apply American law there. It is in fact Iraq." So we're working on this, and we're trying to codify laws to sort of have them apply to people in the private military contractors. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's not an answer, but it's an answer that would suggest an acknowledgement of the problem. He has no idea. He has no idea that that's an issue in Iraq. Uh, come on, man, you can't. Uh, what I do is I, I delegate. No, but bounds of goddamn reason. It wasn't even delegate. It wasn't even delegate. He said, I'll call the secretary. That's what I do. No, what you do is make decisions on important matters. And what law applies to those guys is a very important matter. And not only do you not know the answer, you're not even close to knowing. You don't even realize there's a question. That's the first time he's ever heard that question. Now, wouldn't a curious president ask, hey, listen, 
what laws apply to our military? Oh, of course, the military uh, rules apply. But how about these tens of thousands of U.S. civilians we have inside Iraq? What law applies to them? I mean, come on. Am I asking for too much for the president? Not for the plumber. Not for the dentist. Not for the accountant. But for the president to understand that that's an issue in Iraq. If I was president, I'd get elected on Friday. Assassinated on Saturday. Buried on Sunday. If I was president... Uh, gas prices are uh, shooting up. Uh, we're now over $70. It's going up every day, and it's like $3 a gallon now in California. Uh, why are we giving uh, billion-dollar tax subsidies to, to oil companies? Can someone tell me this? I'm the decider. Oh, yes. That's right. I'm wondering if, uh, you know, given these huge... Uh, you know, these huge profits that the oil companies are, are, are making, whether he's going to just end that policy of giving big tax subsidies to the, the oil companies. No. I love that, John. Let's explain that. that that's John McCain, and uh, he was asked on Stephanopoulos, because remember uh, Vice President Cheney said that uh, the uh, insurgency was, was in its last throes. Uh, he said that about a, almost a year ago now, and uh, a few months ago, uh, McCain was asked by George Stephanopoulos. He said, uh, "Is is the insurgency in its last throes?" No. <laughs> it's my favorite point seven seconds of audio in the entire world. Yeah, because it's just no, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. See, I've been calling for an Apollo program for renewable energy for conservation, but I mean the Apollo program would be like. It's named after the, the president. President Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon when when he first came into office with no reason to be able to say that we could other than that he made a goal and thought that Americans can do this. And by, before the end of the decade, we went to the moon. We can become energy independent. Now, now the world is never going to is not. I mean, we're going to use oil. And uh, oil is fungible. So the the whole China thing. We'll talk to, to uh, uh, Gates. Bates Gill. Bates Gill. This is going to be tough because. Yeah. And he must face that all the time. It's a, a double spoonerism. Bates Gill. That's mm -hmm. that's what that is because mm -hmm. you think Bill Gates. Well, Gill Bates would be a spoonerism. Mm -hmm. Bates Gill is a double spooner. Billy told me that. <laughs> that's what I was wondering. I was going to say that, I missed I missed Billy. Billy. Yeah. Um. But this is interesting. Let's play this. I want to play this is um, from Hardball. Uh, uh, Chris Matthews is on with uh, White House Communications Director Dan Bartlett, who denies that the administration said that the war in Iran, Iraq, war in Iraq, was going to lower energy prices. And this is an interesting exchange. And also we've been stuck by uh, stuck with higher gas prices. That was another promise made that this war would help us get cheaper gas. None I don't, of these promises I, that, come through. That's not correct, Chris. The president or no one else never said that this war was going to result in cheaper gas prices. Okay, so just to make it official, Dan, no one in the administration has ever said that we would have cheaper gas because of the war in Iraq. Just I, to make I, it don't, official. I don't recall anybody ever saying that, Chris. Okay, okay well, then uh, they came back from commercial and... Uh, 
They, uh, Chris, I get the, they got uh, some Google monkeys on your show. Let's, uh, let's listen to this. Dan Barlow there twice denied that the White House ever tried to make the case for war. One of the cases they made for the war with Iraq is it would give us cheaper prices at the pump. Well, our staff has dug this up. This was a case made by Lawrence Lindsay, who was chief economic advisor to the president in the months before the war in the fall of 2002. Very directly, he made the economic case for the war would be cheaper gas prices. Under every plausible scenario, he said, the negative effect economically would be quite small relative to the economic benefits that would come from a successful prosecution of the war. The key issue is oil, and a regime change in Iraq would facilitate an increase in world oil, which would tend to lower oil prices for us. He's been caught there. Dan Bartlett denied that. He, in fact, his White House did, in fact, promise we'd get cheaper gas right now at the pump. Yeah. Uh, good for them. Yeah. Good for Chris, Chris Matthews' uh, staff. But I'll bet you our Google monkeys can beat his Google monkeys. We don't have the opportunity to have administration officials on as often, so it's tougher to catch them in a lie live on our show. We invite them on. They don't come on. I don't know why. I'm I, the decider. But do you think we're going to get – we could. We asked – we have asked uh, Ken Melman uh, of the RNC uh, uh, chair to, to come on. Do you think we're going to get him? No. Show. Now it's Kent Jones now with Kent Jones now. Good morning, Dateline New York. For his latest stunt, magician David Blaine will live underwater for seven days and nights in an eight foot acrylic human aquarium in front of Lincoln Center, and then he will attempt to hold his breath underwater longer than the record of eight minutes and 58 seconds. It's not possible. I, we'll find out. Interesting fact. Marine biologists say that when completely submerged, Blaine's ego expands to three times its original size. <laughs> Ever the showman, Blaine, and Blaine will be delivered to Lincoln Center in a huge baggie and poured into the aquarium. <laughs> For the special called David Blaine Drowned Alive, Blaine will receive liquid nutrition through a tube. Earlier plans to sprinkle food on the surface of the water went awry during test runs when Blaine was overfed and almost ate himself to death. <laughs> if the stunt is a success, Blaine's next plan is to live in a human habit trail, crawling through colorful plastic tubes, working out on a wire mesh wheel, surviving on romaine lettuce, and having a six-year-old complain that he is useless and dumb. <laughs> this is Kent Jones for the Rachel Maddow Show on Air America Mornings. Vigilance. I went and looked up that famous piece The Onion ran back in their issue of January 17th, 2001, the week of Bush's inaugural, and I quote, <clears throat> Washington, D.C., mere days from assuming the presidency and closing the door on eight years of Bill Clinton, President-elect George W. Bush assured the nation in a televised address Tuesday that 
Our long national nightmare of peace and prosperity is finally over. President-elect Bush vows that together we can put the triumphs of the recent past behind us. My fellow Americans, Bush said, at long last we have reached the end of the dark period in American history that will come to be known as the Clinton era. Eight long years characterized by unprecedented economic expansion, a sharp decrease in crime, and sustained peace overseas. The time has come to put all of that behind us. Yo, that was the onion. I mean, what stands out about that is that they underestimated how crazy things were really going to get. It's hard for satired outstrip reality these days. Even The Onion couldn't have imagined the Texas Republican platform of 2004, which said, The United States of America is a Christian nation, and the public acknowledgement of God is undeniable in our history. Our nation was founded on fundamental Judeo-Christian principles based on the Holy Bible. Now a message from the President of the United States, George W. Bush. Good morning. This week I made it clear that who the decider is in Washington. It's the President. I am the decision-makinger. I make the decisions, and I decideify on all those decisions. Then I take up my mind and conclude to a finalized conclusible. The Executive Decider-in-Chief must chief until the end executing authoritates. I won't be real clear on that. My staff followizes my orderings. It's vital. As we face anemones abroads, overseasoned, that the presider and the chiefs preview all my optimums, listening to all my voices and wordings, and then confounding to a replete depletion and then actify on those conflations. Thank you for Kleenexing, and God bless you. Thanks for listening, everybody, and a special thanks to the fine people working hard over in the West Wing on the President's Weekly Radio Address. If you'd like to hear more of the weekly radio addresses, you can find those at weeklyradioaddress.com. The archives go all the way back to President Bush's 2005 inauguration. And you can also find the most recent addresses at theonion.com. As for the Best of the Left podcast, the archives in the feed go all the way back to about 20 episodes ago, but there are even more to be found at the website that go even farther back. So you can check those out at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. That's also where you can Find all the ways to contact me, interact with the show, join the community, have all kinds of fun, vote on Podcast Alley, although if you're thinking about doing that, you might as well wait until May, because that's how the system works. You can, however, leave me reviews at iTunes. If you're the type of person that this matters to, I will just mention uh, against my usual instincts that today, April 27th, the day that this show is coming out, is my birthday. And all I'm asking for is reviews on iTunes. So if uh, that tugs at your heartstrings at all, then more power to you. You can contact me directly at hippysympathizer at gmail.com. 
and that's all for today. Have a good one, everybody.